Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. And thank you, Devin, for reading our lesson this morning. Thank you, Allison, for leading us to the throne of grace in prayer this morning. Uh, and to Thomas and our praise team and to each of you who have chosen to be a part of this special time in worship, we welcome you and praise God for you. If you have been with us since the third day of January, we're continuing our series this morning that we began at that time called Reorientation in a Disoriented World. And we're with yet another parable from the Gospel of Matthew. Over these last five weeks, we have been staying in the Gospel of Matthew. There are no less than 23 parables in the first Gospel. But before we look into this specific text, this morning, I want to remind you of two or three things about the parables that I think are important to note. And the first thing is this, I want to remind you that the parables of Jesus are not simply comparisons, but they are contrasts. In other words, the parables of Jesus challenge the listener to consider how each metaphor in the parable is like the kingdom or in some cases, unlike the kingdom. Isn't it, isn't it true that when you're trying to explain, when you're trying to articulate a mystery, it really is helpful to see both the similarity and the dissimilarity. For example, God is often in the New Testament likened to a monarch, to a king, to a ruler, but the notion that God is a ruthless vindictive king who burns down his own kingdom out of vengeance doesn't necessarily compute 
And so there is comparison and there is contrast. A second thing I want us to note about parables, and that is this, parables tend to have a specific point, and yet they can speak in a variety of ways to our differing contexts. Take, for example, the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll talk about in two weeks. When I was a teenager, I interpreted this story from the perspective of the lost boy who desperately needed grace. When we became parents, when my kids were teenagers, I saw this story from the loving father's angle in terms of needing to extend grace. In fact, I'll confess there has been a time or two in my ministry where I have actually resonated with the barbecued calf on occasion. And nowadays, I'm way too often in the elder brother's corner But the fact is, sometimes the parables comfort us and sometimes they convict us. That's the nature of Scripture. It comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And so we come to the text prepared for either and for both. A third thing you may notice about these parables is that they're slightly different in variation depending on who's telling it. Luke's version, for example, of this parable that Devin read for us is a little bit different from Matthew's account. It's the same story, but each text is specifically nuanced by the writer for their unique community, for their unique audience. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that the parable of the wedding feast is actually an allegory of salvation history. But before we dig into the text, before we go there, let me remind you, as always, of context. According to Matthew, it's Holy Week. After Jesus' triumphal entry in Matthew 21, you remember he goes into the temple, into the temple courts, he cleanses the temple, and now Jesus is under the watchful eye of the chief priests and elders. During Holy Week, each day he's teaching in the temple courts, and it's no accident that he's aiming his message at the religious professionals who are now questioning his authority. I mentioned last week that whenever Jesus gets painted into a corner, he rarely gives a direct answer. He usually tells a parable, a story, And the hearers go home grappling with their own presuppositions, saying to themselves, what did he mean? Was he talking about me? And this is one of three parables that Jesus tells in this context to the text. Matthew 22, verse 1 begins like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that the kingdom is often likened to a wedding reception. In other words, this is the most joyous occasion in the life of a Jewish community. In such an event, there were two invitations that would go out prior to the feast. The first would be given well in advance to let the guests know of the approximate date and time, a sort of what we might call a save the date kind of notice. 
If you'll look at the next slide, I have one of those save the date things in our own family. This is our son, uh, Andrew, who will be married. They have just sent save the date for June the 12th, which happens to be my parents' anniversary, and they have sent this out. It appears as though now everyone in our family the last eight months is getting married. That's the first notification of the event. The second invite would be given when the feast was ready. The first invitation had been given and accepted, and now the servants are going back out into the community to say, it's time. And all who initially accepted were supposed to stop everything and join the party. But that isn't what happens here. Those who were initially invited don't respond at all. In fact, there are no-shows. Now, what you ought to understand is that in the first century, a royal invitation like this is not really, it's not really a request. (laughs) It's a summons. In fact, to reject this invitation would probably be viewed by the king as an act of sedition, treason. But at this point, this king exercises great tolerance, tremendous patience, and he resends the servants to say again, all is ready, dinner's getting cold. But not only do they snub the request, they make light of it. They trivialize it. One goes back to his plow, another goes back to his office, as if to say, we have more important things to do. And get this, verse 6 says that some on the guest list not only didn't respond, they seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. This is our salvation history. When you read the Old Testament, you note that the prophets offered the invitation initially, and though it was received and accepted, there was resistance. Indeed, many of the early prophets were mistreated. They were abused and oppressed. Later, the early Christian missionaries also were sent out to say, now's the time. This is the acceptable hour. The kingdom is at hand. And not only did they shun the message, they shot the messenger. They crucified the bridegroom. And that's our story. This is an allegory of salvation history. Think about it. Jeremiah was thrown into a well. Isaiah the prophet sawn in two. John the Baptist beheaded. Jesus crucified. Stephen stoned. The Apostle Paul beheaded, and all but two, all but two of the original 12 apostles were martyred because of their message. Eugene Peterson is a familiar name to many of you. You read frequently his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. In one of his books, he writes this interesting note. Hebrew and Christian history reveal that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more often than it is accepted. It is dismissed, ignored, made light of far more than it is embraced. Indeed, 
he says, it has been either ignored or attacked by every major culture in which it has given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, enlightened France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, and even pursuit of happiness America. The community of joy, he says, has endured in all these cultures, but usually as a minority, marginal to the mainstream, seldom statistically significant, but always eternally vital. That's our history. Back to the parable. The king in this story apparently is so outraged by the abuse of the servants that what does he do? He sends out the troops and destroys the people and burns down the city. Now, when I read that, it seems very unlikely to me that a king would sabotage, would destroy his own kingdom, especially when the cake's on the table and the steak's on the grill. But what I suggest is that Matthew is trying at this point to explain the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, a decade before he records his gospel. The truth of the matter is when any kingdom or nation rebuffs a divine appeal or makes light of it or trivializes it, profanes it, or worse, harasses and persecutes the servants, there are ramifications. There are consequences. There is such a thing as wrath, the wrath of God. We don't speak of it much, but it's not so much vengeful anger. It's not hurling random lightning bolts at random sinners. In fact, I remember something J.I. Packer once said in his classic book, Knowing God. He said this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is for us. It is instead a natural consequence of objective moral evil. It is simply God allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own choices. I'm still haunted today by H. Richard Niebuhr, one of the great Christian ethicists of the 20th century who described Protestant liberalism's gospel in the 20th century like, like this, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Paul spoke of the wrath of God like this, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. I remember something D.A. Carson said, the Canadian theologian. He said this, a wrathless God does not make God more attractive. It makes God 
morally indifferent. There is such a thing. Although please, let me be quick to say that the wrath of God is not ours to dispense. Paul knew that and he writes to the Romans to this effect in chapter 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the amazing thing to me about God is that God has a way of even using evil to bring about good. I didn't say God causes evil. Good cannot cause evil. But God can use even evil to bring about good, as is true in this parable. Notice the rejection by God's chosen actually leads to the inclusion of the Gentiles. The rejection of others actually opens the door to us. We are the original wedding crashers. Listen again to verse 8, Matthew 22. Then the king said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the street corners and invite anyone and everyone you find. And so the servants went out and gathered all they could find, both, listen, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. Oh my goodness, that is so Jesus. He just lets any old body in. Good and bad, healthy and sick, moral and immoral, decent and indecent, saint and sinner, just and unjust. He just lets anybody in. Because the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. In fact, Jesus has an affinity for the marginalized. But this is where the parable gets confusing. It's in the last four verses. Verse 11 begins, when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed there a man who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding robe? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a little harsh to me. Now remember the comparison and contrast A guy on the street wouldn't have had proper clothing for a wedding anyway, so what gives here? But apparently, everybody from the street is now in the wedding party, and he's the only one who is inappropriately dressed. What's the deal? Well, here's the deal. When the king enters into the reception hall, that is a signal of the parousia, 
the end time, the judgment. The clothing this king is concerned about is not formal wear, it's not tuxes and gowns, it's not fabric or thread. The clothing he's concerned about is righteous deeds. Now the New Testament often speaks of the redeemed life as one that is clothed in righteousness. In fact, in the early church, when a person was converted and baptized, their new identity in Christ was often pictured as donning a new robe, a new set of clothes. This is an expression of giving up the old dungarees, giving up the old life, and putting on Christ. What this means to me is, this is a come-as-you-are party, but it is not a remain-as-you-are party. That's why Paul wrote to the Colossians, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience, and above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds all things together in perfect harmony. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Apparently, according to this parable, it isn't enough to show up. You've got to dress up. You've got to put on Christ. Once you're in the hall, we put on the corresponding deeds of the authentic life of Christ because salvation isn't just about being on the guest list. It's about new clothes. It's about a different way of living. Now, I want to illustrate this, and I'm finished. I may have shared this story several years ago, I hope it bears repeating. In our first year of marriage, Sherry and I, we had a family funeral in West Virginia, Princeton, West Virginia. Had an uncle and aunt there, our uncle passed away. And Sherry and I, at that time, this was 1986, uh, were, were both working outside the home and it fell my lot to pack for the trip. She laid everything out. I was to pack the suitcase and the hanging bag. I would pick her up at work and off we would go. We needed every minute to arrive in time. And when she got in the car, she questioned my packing. I was offended. Did you get this? Did you get that? Did you pack my suitcase, the cosmetic bag? Did you get the dress hanging on the door? I got it, I got it. You need to trust me, I said. And when we arrived, we unloaded, we put things in the room. And the next morning we were dressing for the service and she said, honey, you must have left my dress in the car in the hanging bag, would you go and get it? I opened the closet thinking she overlooked it. There was my suit, but no dress. And suddenly I had a sinking spell. I needed a cold cloth. I said, stuttering, yes, dear, I'll go now to the car and get your dress, knowing full well that that dress was not in that car. But I went out anyway, hoping for 
a water to wine miracle, but sure enough, it wasn't there. I looked under the seats, I shifted around in the trunk, I looked under the spare tire, the jack, as if, but what I was really doing was what my forefathers taught me to do, I was buying time. All the while in the search, thanking God for my brief but fleeting marriage that was now about to be over. I went back up the stairs and said, honey, I've got a great idea. You know that mall we passed on the way to the house? I've been wanting to buy you a new dress. And she said, you didn't. I said, no, I didn't. It was the quickest shopping trip we've ever made. And I'll have to tell you, it was costly. You cannot be in a hurry and get a deal and I paid dearly for that new dress. But I have to tell you that after the service, at the reception, when we were eating together, people were coming through the line. She was undoubtedly, unquestionably, <laughs> the best dressed person in the family. And people would come by and say, oh, I love your dress. And I'd look at them as if to say, you're welcome. And that's our story. appears to me that God in Christ has done something similar for us. What we could not do for ourselves, he has done for us and is costly. As we said in our creed, he gave up life for love and he clothed us with mercy and grace and compassion. And somehow he fit us for the party, for the kingdom. Come as you are, but we didn't stay as we were. God not only provides the invitation, he provides the attire. And all we have to do is just put it on, wear it well. And when you do, God is glorified and others are blessed and you'll be the best dressed person in the party. May it be so. In Jesus' name.